It has been prearranged and predetermined that your life declare a story. That before you existed, God in his love predetermined to choose you and set you apart to be a part of something that is vital, something that is critical, something that is historical, something that is biblical, something that is eternal, something that is for and only for his glory. When Mike and I uh, came and started Grace Point Church, which by the way, Mike, if you're here for the first time, I'm not Pastor Mike. I'm not a pastor. I don't pretend to be a pastor. I like fill in for him like maybe once a year and I'm just like going to guide us through the word today. But when, uh, when we came and we planted Grace Point Church, I had a graphic design job that I kind of did freelance on the side. And I had a woman contact me from this prestigious organization in the area, and she wanted to talk with me about doing some designs. And I thought, this is really cool. And I was a little bit nervous, but she came and met me at my house where my office was. So I put together my portfolio, made it look really professional, and she shows up at the door. And she's looking really sharp, and she's short and petite and just cute. And she has this red and white check shirt on that's tied really high around her waist. It's just kind of like long and flowy out. And I said something out of my mouth. It was just one little statement, but it revealed what I believe to be true about her. And I just simply said, so when are you due? Thank you for confirming my stupidity. Yes. And she responded back with words to reveal what it was actually true, that she was not pregnant. I can tell you right now, just like if you're taking notes, like never ever again in the history of ever have I asked a woman, when are you due? I don't care if she's 10 months pregnant, knocking over cups of coffee and small children in the hallway. I will not ask her when she's due. Now I might say to her, like, how many children do you have? And if she says, well, this is my first, I might say, oh, see, I didn't even notice. So like, (laughs) when are you due? And so the reality is that often what we say reveals what we believe to be true. But not only what we say, but even sometimes how we say it. So if Mike comes in the room and he's sporting a new shirt and I say to him, huh, you got a new shirt. What he's thinking is, my wife noticed I got a new shirt. She's thinking I'm looking good in this new shirt. And we might do something about that later, but she's thinking she likes this shirt. But if I say to him, you got a new shirt? Like that translates, my wife hates my shirt and she's wondering why I spent good money on this shirt. But after 28 years of marriage, ladies, take note, because this is what you do. He can simply come into the room and I can just simply in a very monotone way say, you got a new shirt. (laughs) To which to him translates meaning, I don't really know which way to take that. But my wife noticed she got, I got a new shirt. I'm not really sure if she likes my shirt, but she's going to be polite and acknowledge I got a shirt. And we're not going to have an argument about whether or not I got a new shirt. Like that's how that works. So like what you say reveals what you believe to be true, but how you say it can also reveal the posture of your heart. 
And so what we're going to do today is, is Mike has been leading us through Ecclesiastes in this series of, of finding margin. And we're not going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes today, but I do believe that what we're going to look at today, while it might even be somewhat re- familiar, I hope is refreshing as you consider your life and even the margin that you are attempting to find in your life. And the way that we're going to do this is we're going to ask two questions, and then I'm going to give you some principles underneath those, okay? So So the very first question is this. The very first question is, what in the world is God doing? Now, how we ask that question can reveal maybe the circumstances of our life. It can reveal what we believe. It can even reveal the posture of our heart. So we could ask it like this, like, what in the world is God doing? Like, like, God, what are you thinking With all the evil and all the disasters and all the destruction and all the wars and all the refugees that we see in the world, like, what in the world is God doing? Or we could ask it this way. We could simply just say, what in the world is God doing? As is, does he even exist? Because I'm not really confident that he does. I mean, I don't hear him. I hear people talk about him, but I don't see him. Or we could ask it this way. What in the world is God doing? As if it's a mystery, but we're in awe. As if we're sitting on the edge of our seat and we want to lean in and we want to know. And so what we're going to do is we're going to answer this question by looking at the grand narrative of Scripture. And I want us to catch a glimpse of God's story, like the big narrative of his story, and how your little subplot of your little story fits into the narrative of God's. And so what we're going to do, usually when I teach, I like to like take a few verses or a chapter, maybe a couple of chapters, and like peel back the layers of those and, you know, kind of chew on them and savor it a little bit. But instead, what we're going to do today is we're going to almost like a highlight reel, go through passages of scripture that some I'm going to summarize and some of the verses will be on the screen and some of the stories I'm simply just going to tell, but we're going to almost like a buffet, Okay, instead of like a full, like we're going to take a little bit of this and we're going to take a little bit of that, but we're going to look at the entire narrative of scripture and see how God's narrative and his grand story informs how we live our little stories in that. So boys and girls, are you ready? Because you know how this begins. Mom and dad knows how this begins too. It's just become too familiar, but I hope it becomes refreshing as we review. But here we go. This is how it begins. Ironically, the story begins with words. When God spoke. And he said, let there be light. Boys and girls, then there was what? Light. And God said, let there be water. And there was what? And God said, let there be vegetation. And there was what? That one was a little harder to say. But yes, vegetation and photosynthesis and metamorphosis and all the things that you learn in biology, God created. And he looked at it and he said, that is good. And then he said, let's create man and woman In our image, God created you. God created me. Why? In Isaiah, it says this, chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, listen, whom I created for what? For my That was the cue right there. Like, this was audience participation time. That I created for what? For my glory. 
whom I formed and made. So listen, don't get too familiar with the story that you miss the moment of what God is saying here. Here's story principle number one. Don't get lost in the familiarity, but rather be caught up in the elementary reality that you bring glory to God. You were created for nothing more and nothing less than for the glory of God. He created you not to fit in, but to be set apart and to be an active participant in his bigger story. So that's the beginning of the big story. But the little story, the crisis story, also ironically begins with words. When Adam and Eve engage in a conversation with the enemy in the garden, and the enemy says, look, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows that if you do, then you will be like God. And they take the fruit and they eat it. And at that point, just like many of us in this room, we attempt to make our little stories bigger than God ever intended them to be. And Romans 3.23 says that even though God created us for his glory, that we sin, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, boys and girls, like how many is all? Like how many is that? Is that 10? Is it 50? Is it 100 million? Like how many is all? Is it you? Did I sin? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what the Bible says about that? It says that sin began to fill the earth, as the earth began to multiply, and it grieved God's heart that he had created man. But there was one man named Noah who found favor with God, and God sent a flood over the entire earth, but he saved Noah and his family in the ark. And when the waters parted and, the, and, and the, the ark landed on dry land, God made a covenant with Noah and his family and told them to be fruitful and to multiply on the earth. And so the people began to multiply. But listen to what they said in Genesis eleven four. Listen to these words. Come, let us build a tower to the top of the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Do you get the tension? Like people were only like in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh. Did she say we're going through the entire narrative of scripture? Do you feel the tension? Like God said, I'm God. And the people were like, yeah, but we want to be like God. And God says, I created this for my glory and my name. And people are saying, yeah, but we want to make a name for ourselves. And what begins to happen then and what begins to even happen now is we become consumed with our little stories and attempt to make them as big as we possibly can. And we look at life and assess and calculate and analyze and evaluate who we think we are and who we think other people think we are. And this becomes the narrative that we tell ourselves about ourselves. You were created for nothing more and nothing less than the glory of God. But God chose a man named Abram. And he said, Abram, I want you by faith to go to a, plan, a place that I'm going to show you. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And your descendants will outnumber the sand, if you can count the sand. And your descendants will outnumber the stars, if you can count the stars. And, and, and Abraham's like, wait, like, time out. Because, like, I have no children. Here's story, or here's the principle in the story number two. 
God's plan for his name doesn't fit neatly into a plan that we can explain. God comes to Abraham when he's old and said, this is going to happen. You're going to have descendants. And Abraham is like, I have no child. How is this going to happen? And then it says in scripture that with God, nothing is impossible. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has twins named Jacob and Esau. So man, we're really multiplying now, right? We went from one to three total. Esau is like kind of burly and furry and Jacob's a little more fragile, kind of a mama's boy. But mama and Jacob, they devised this plan to trick Esau and to trick dad into getting the blessing. And Jacob gets the blessing and now he's on the run because his brother Esau is furious with him. And while he's on the run, he picks up a few wives. And at one moment, he now wrestles with God. And God asks him, Jacob, what is your name? He said, well, my name is Jacob. He said, no longer will your name be called Jacob. But now you will be called Israel. And Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons. One of those sons was Jacob's favorite, Joseph, who had a coat of what? Many colors, right? But his brothers were very jealous and envious, sin. And so they made a plot to kill him, sin. But instead, one of the brothers said, hey, well, let's sell him into slavery. So basically trafficking, sin. And Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. He finds favor there. But he's wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. And so he ends up in prison. And when he's in prison, there's two other cellmates that have a dream. And by God's favor and by God's design, Joseph interprets these dreams. And he says, when you get out of prison, don't forget me. Well, the two guys get out of prison One is killed, but the other one remains alive. A few years goes by, and Pharaoh now has a dream which he can't interpret. And the former prisoner says, hey, I know a guy. His name's Joseph. So they bring Joseph out of prison, and Joseph hears Pharaoh's dream, and, and he interprets it of seven years of plenty of crop and seven years of famine. And so what you need to do, Pharaoh, is you need to save all the crops so you can feed all the people in all the land. The famine hits Israel. So now Israel... Jacob and all the descendants of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham travel now to the land of Egypt. And when they come before Joseph, Joseph recognizes them. And he reveals himself to his brothers. And they all began to weep because of what God had done. But listen to these words. In all of that plight and all of those problems and in all of that trouble, this is what Joseph says in Genesis 45 verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You mean to tell me that in all of that sin, that in all of the scheming, that in all the story that didn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, I mean, it's really not fair, God, that Joseph says, it wasn't you, but God who sent me here. Here's story principle number three. Human activity cannot alter or amend God's sovereignty. Human activity cannot alter or amend God's sovereignty. In Acts 17, verse 26, it says this, that God, that from one man, God, he made all nations. Why? That they should inhabit the whole earth. How? He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Our team in Greece right now is in Athens, Greece, working with Syrian refugees. And you think that God doesn't know that this migration can't result in future salvation for those Syrian people in Greece? 
So now Israel is in the land of Egypt and Joseph dies and Israel continues to multiply and it frightens the Egyptians. So they make the work harder on the Israelites and the Israelites still continue to multiply. And so they make the work even harder on the Israelites. And finally, they send out a decree that all the male children of the Israelites should be killed. But there's one Hebrew family that took their little baby and put him in a basket whose name was Moses, and sends him down a river. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him. So now you have this Hebrew child who was born to a Hebrew family being raised in the family of a pagan king. And one day, Moses sees strife taking place. He ends up murdering one of the Egyptians. And now he's running and he's out in the wilderness for decades. But in the wilderness, when he's tending his father-in-law's flock of sheep, he sees a burning bush. And from this burning bush, God speaks to him there. And he tells them, I'm going to send you to deliver my Israelites, my people, out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And Moses, in chapter 3, verse 13, says, Moses says to God, well, suppose I go. And they ask me, what's his name? Like, what is God's name? Who's this God that's sending you? What am I supposed to tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And God reveals his name, Yahweh, or I am to Moses for the very first time. I am everything. I am in control. I'm calling the shots, which I think to Moses then meant he finally understood perhaps that I'm not. I'm not in control. I'm not calling the shots. I'm not everything. As a matter of fact, I'm not what it's all about. Here's story principle number four. When you fully know the great I am, you fully know that you're not. So Moses, in this reality, goes to Pharaoh. And I don't know how your Bible sums it up, but I'm going to sum it up like this. Um, He goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, "Uh, no. Okay, that's the short condensed version. Okay, that's how that's going to go. But what I think is really amazing, and I don't want you to miss, but you're just going to get the soundbite version, is if we were to go to the book of Exodus and we were to pull back all the layers of that entire narrative, what you would begin to see is this pattern where God says in, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, I'm going to stretch out my hand with plagues, listen, so that you will know that I am the Lord. And then he says about frogs in verse 8, 10, or chapter 8, verse 10, he says, I'm going to send frogs. Why? That you may know that there is no one like the Lord. In 8.22, flies, I'm doing this. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord. Do you see like the pattern here? Finally, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go and they chase them as far as the Red Sea. And when they get to Red Sea, Moses raises his staff, the sea parts, the Israelites cross on dry land. Pharaoh and his Egyptian army follow after them, but the sea crashes upon them. But in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, it says this, God speaks, for this purpose, I raised you up, speaking of Pharaoh, to show my power that my name may be proclaimed 
in all the earth. God uses a pagan king for the purpose of declaring his own name. So the Israelites are out in the wilderness and because they wouldn't go into the promised land, they're wandering around for 40 years. Moses dies, Joshua is raised up and he now leads the Israelites, the people, into the promised land. And when they get to the Jordan River, which the banks are flooded, they cannot cross until by faith they step into the water with the Ark and the Covenant. The waters dry up. Why? So they don't get their chacos wet? In Joshua, it says this. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and that you might always fear the Lord your God. The Israelites followed hard after God for quite some time, as long as they had a judge that was leading them like Gideon. And then after Gideon would die, then the people would fall away and they wouldn't follow God until God raised up another judge like Deborah. And then the people would follow hard and hot after God until she passes away. And then they no longer follow hard and hot until he raises up another judge like Samuel, who not only was judge, but he was also a prophet and he was a priest. And God comes to Samuel and says this, I want you to go and I'm going to anoint a king that the people are asking me for. And so Samuel anoints Saul who disobeys God. And then finally God sends him to a little family whose father's name is Jesse, who has several sons. And they bring the sons before Samuel, specimen A is not the person, specimen B is not the person. And finally it's like, where are all the sons? And there's a little runt of a guy who's out tending the sheep and they bring him before and God says this. This is the one that you're going to anoint as king. And so they anoint David, a man after God's own heart. Not long after that, his brothers are off fighting the Philistine army out in the land. And so his dad says, hey, David, I want you to take some bread and cheese to your brothers. Now, let me just tell you this. I have a son who's in the army who's been deployed, and not once did he write home for bread and cheese. So I just want to make that known. I don't know where that came from, okay? But David goes with bread and cheese to the Israelite army who's fighting Goliath. And when he gets there, he sees that not only is the army of God being demoralized, but the name of God is being defamed. And so he makes this statement in 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down. And I don't know why, but I absolutely love this phrase. I'm gonna cut off your head. Like, let's just seal the deal right here. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God. It had nothing to do with David. It had nothing to do with his strength. Here's principle number five. The story is less about the giant and more about the name of the God who delivers from the giant. Or in other words, in your own life, it's not about the size of the giant or the strength of the giant in your life. It's about the size of God and the strength of him in your life. It's not about the drama of your past. It's the story of deliverance of God from your past. It's not the awfulness of your sin. It's the awe-inspiring story of a God who redeems you and forgives your sin. Amen? David was a king after God's own heart. He had a son named Solomon, who we've been reading his writings for the past several weeks in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon was full of wisdom and full of the world. And he had a son named Rehoboam, who had no heart. And it was at that time that the kingdoms now divide. 
So seemingly the story splits. And Israel goes to the north and Judah goes to the south. And this is what it says of these nations in 2 Kings. Listen, so these nations, they worship the Lord. But also worshiped their idols. I don't know what it is that we think that we can straddle obedience. Where we can have one foot in obedience and one foot in disobedience. I, which I don't even know if, like, can you, if you're disobedient, can't be obedience at all, right? So I asked my son, my youngest, Josh, I said, hey, can I share this story on Sunday? And this is what his, his reply was, yes, just don't make me look bad. So when Josh was about nine years old, um, he had a dog and it was his job and task to feed and water that dog. And so we would send him outside, go feed water your dog. He'd come back in. I think he was feeding and watering his dog. Next day, go feed and water your dog. And I think he's feeding and watering his dog. And for like you know, a couple of days until finally I walk outside, like the dog's bowl is completely empty and dry. And what Josh had been doing was just going outside just going through the motions of obedience, but not really obeying and feeding and watering the dog, just looking like he was feeding and watering the dog. Now, before I tell you what I did, you need to know this is my biological child. He's not a foster child. I know the rules when it comes to foster kids and so forth. So just know, okay, like, like this is mine. And he had just been well-fed that morning, okay? And so we're sitting at the table and I said, Josh, I cannot believe that you have done this for a couple of days. And I looked at him and I said, Josh, you are grounded the rest of the day from food. Some of you are like, I don't know if that's good parenting or not. (laughs) And uh, he's sitting there and he starts crying. And then pretty soon the crying turns to hyperventilation, you know. (laughs) And then he says, you can't do that to me. I'm a human. I could die. And I said, I don't care. No, I I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. We fed him by 4 p.m., okay? The boy, he's living, he's healthy, he's good. But here's the thing. Like, all of us do it. I did it. I mean, I confessed. My parents were sitting here in the first service. Like, I had to confess. I don't know that they knew that when they told me to go take a shower, I would go and stand in the bathroom and turn on the water, but not actually get in the tub. But I would get my hand wet and kind of rub it up against the tail to make them think that I had dried off my wet body because I had gotten into the shower. But we go through the motions of half-hearted obedience. But parents, do we not want our children to fully, wholeheartedly obey? And the Israelites were worshiping God and worshiping their idols both. And God said that you're going to be taken captive and you're going to be scattered throughout all the land. And so the Assyrians came in, defeated them, and the Babylonians came in. That's when, like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the furnace of, what, fire at that time. And Daniel, who was thrown into the lion, or in a den of lions, and yet he is saved. And you know what the pagan king said in Daniel chapter 6, verse 25 to 26 says, Then King Darius, after he saw that Daniel had been saved from the lion's mouth, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language in all the earth, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever again a pagan king. 
God's people are scattered. And he says, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back together. But he had a reason that he was going to do that. In Ezekiel 36, 22, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord said. It is not for your sake. It's not for your sake. In other words, it's, it's not really about you that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Here's a story principle for you. God uses discipline for our good, but ultimately for his glory. Years after that, we don't have much record or any record for several hundred years, prophets speaking, God doing any mighty acts. We know that the Greeks came in and conquered Alexander the Great and Rome came in and and took over until one night when a baby is born and God had told Joseph that you're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. He called his disciples so he, he could be close to them, then so that he could send them out to preach. He had power over demons. He had power over storms. He had power to heal. He had power over death. When they crucified him, they put him in a tomb, they sealed the tomb, and yet three days later, he rose again, and he appears to his disciples. And one of my favorite passages is in the book of Luke, and the very beginning of it is my favorite portion of this passage. In Luke chapter 24, it says this, that Jesus, when he's speaking to them, that he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Like, what scripture was that? Like, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and all the others past that. They didn't have the writings of Paul. They didn't even have, like, a a book or codex or something like that they they could carry around. What they had was scrolls that might be at the synagogue or maybe copies of scrolls that would be around. And so what they had is they had, like, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had Psalms. They had the Apollos. And so Jesus is, like, having a Bible study with them, like small group is happening right now, communitas. And he is doing what we just did, where he's going to the Old Testament so that it all begins to make sense. That these aren't little stories divided up. This all fits together. Matter of fact, you're a part of it. And he told them, this is what's written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And he ascended into heaven. But he told them to wait, for he was going to send a comforter, a helper. So the disciples get together, men, women, they're fasting and praying. When the Holy Spirit rushes upon them, it says, like a roaring wind and like flames of tongues of fire on their head. And they begin to speak in tongues in a miraculous way. So that all the people who had gathered there from all the cities and nations around because of Pentecost now heard the gospel, spoke to them in their language for the very first time. And church breaks out. A ragtag group of believers gathering together are now the ones who are now going and sharing the gospel because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The very same Holy Spirit that empowers and enables and dwells within you and me if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. They're persecuted and they're martyred and yet they multiply. Here's story principle for you. God, it's kind of a long one, 
God has been on a mission to make his name known from the beginning. It didn't start when the Holy Spirit came. He has been, as we have seen through the Old Testament, active about making his name known to all people. Now the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the followers of Christ to carry out this mission. He gives this mission to the church. You're part of the church. You are a part of God's mission. What, like, what is that? Making his name and his glory known in all the earth. So let's, let's leave the macro for a few minutes and let's zoom in a little tighter on the micro, okay? Because here's the second question I want us to ask. Here's the second question. What in the world are you doing for God's name? Now, when I first typed this out, it, I was like looking at it. It's really what I wanted to say. But as I was thinking it through, I thought, if I say it that way, it's going to come across profane. Because here's what I really wanted to say is, what in God's name are you doing in the world? What in his name? So when you consider your margin in life and you're considering all those things and what needs to go and what do I need to stop and what do I need to start, perhaps one question that you need to ask is what in the world am I doing for his name? Or why am I doing what I'm doing? And what that often does is it stirs up another question within us which generates some intimidation depending on how we ask it. But we ask this question like, well, who am I? Okay, great. So there's a grand narrative and there's this big story and there's this big God and I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. But like, really, who am I? And we begin to like go through our life like it's a boilerplate or the inside flap jacket of a book. Of all that, well, I'm a wife, I'm a, you know, I'm a mom, I'm an employer here, I've done this, I graduated that. Or we begin to look at it like, well, who am I? Like, isn't that what we paid the paid professional preacher to do? Who am I? I'm not equipped. I'm not adequate. I'm, I'm not educated enough. I mean, I'm not like the person down the street, the person who leads my small group. And we begin to compare ourselves with other people, like the woman in your neighborhood who makes bread out of cauliflower and all of her friends and family, they like it and her children rise up and call her blessed. <laughs> right? Or like the, the mom and dad down the street, you know, they have seven children all under the age of five and... They get up at the crack of dawn and they sit around, you know, this pre-prepared breakfast all neatly. It looks like something from Pinterest and mom and dad study the Bible together while the children quietly color and patient. And then when they're done, then they all like recite the books of the Bible backwards, right? <laughs> and what we begin to do is a tragic amount of head talk where we begin to make assumptions and conclusions and presumptions that we allow to commandeer our thinking and we allow this to be the narration of the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and ultimately the story that we actually never tell about God. Here's pr another principle for you. Who you are is defined by whose you are. Who you are is defined by whose you are. And what you have got to is, comprehend is what it means to be chosen by God and what it means to be loved by God, that you didn't earn any of that. Instead, it's really attributed to you. God said, or it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. It also says in scripture, you didn't choose me, I chose you. 
that you were created by him and you were created for him. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, the invisible God, the image and total sum of all of God's character, the exact representation of all that God is, Jesus Christ holds all things together. All things were created by him and through him and for him. And this Jesus Christ in whom all the fullness of God dwells, dwells in you. But don't mistake this. It's not the story of Jesus in you, your life. It is different than that. It's not that just that he's in your life. He is your life as a follower of Christ. It's not this whole idea is like, well, this is part of my story. No, believers, followers of Christ, this is your story. It's historical, it's biblical, it is eternal. After the Holy Spirit came, Peter, the guy who had denied Christ, and John, they're like now going back through normal life. Off the mountaintop experience, they're going back through normal life. They're going by synagogue, which they would do all the time. And there was a lame man who was there, a beggar who was there every day. And Peter simply looks at him this time because his perspective has completely changed because of the Holy Spirit in his life. He leverages this ordinary moment. He looks at the guy and he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. And all the people are completely amazed and completely in awe. And they want to know, by what power did this happen? And Peter says to them, he said, it is by his name, by faith in his name, that this man has been made strong. Here's another principle for you. Tether your confidence to the one who enables you to participate in his story. Because when you do the ordinary timeline of your day, the calendar, your to-do list, you, you actually absolutely have a different perspective of all that can take place. We have to begin to reject passivity and accept responsibility that I was made to make his name known. Here's another principle for you. Remember whose name is on the line. Remember whose name was on the line. Because of this one act, Peter and John are arrested and they're brought before court. And when they're standing before the court, the courts want to know pretty much like the same thing that the crowd was asking. By what power and by what name did this happen? And here was their response in Acts chapter 4. By what name and, or by what power and what name did you do this? And Peter said to them, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And don't miss it. It's a drop mic moment. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I was in Nepal with a group of women not too long ago. And we went up to uh, the Himalayas area, about 12,000 feet. There's this mountaintop and this place is called Muktanath. And people from all over travel there. Ironically, Muktanath actually translates to mean place of salvation. And so when you enter into this place, as people are coming from everywhere, there's bells over here that 
Hindus can ring to wake up the gods. And there's Buddhist flags flying everywhere. So that when the wind flaps the flags, it's supposed to be like these blessings of protection that are over the people. And there's a, there's a five-story Buddhist shrine over here that you can go and pray to. But what makes this so special at this place is the Himalayan waters are pouring down and they are streamed into 108 fountains in this little crevice. And what people believe is this, if they will run through that cold water and those 108 fountains, it will wash away their sin. And so literally you can ask people that are there. I can go up to them and say, like, where are you from? They may say where they're from, or I may have the translator having to help me. And, and they would tell me and I'd say, well, so like, why are you here? And they literally would say, I'm seeking salvation. Not in Jesus Christ's name. And you know what's ironic is that like we can go to other places and we can we can have some people say well you go on a mission trip it's so much easier to share your faith there no it's not it's easier you know why you could talk about religion like they want to talk about religion here nobody wants to talk about religion like don't ask me about it the other day i was sitting on a plane uh beside a girl just a few days ago and i had my ear pods in and she begins chatting with me i'm thinking okay well here we go so i take my ear pods out we begin chatting and she doesn't know me and she goes how was your day I'm thinking, oh, I don't even know how to answer that because I had had a really horrible day. And so I just looked at her and I said, well, I've had better. <laughs> I said, how was your day? Which was an invitation for a long laundry list of everything that had taken place at work and everything that had taken place in her family and everything that was taking place in her marriage. And I literally sat there and my response to her was, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> and I asked her one question. I said, so what do you really want? You know what her response was? She sat there for a while. She said, I think what I really want is I just want my story to matter. Like, do you not work with people that feel that, that think that? Do your kids not go to school with parents who think that, feel that? Do you not go to school with people who think and feel like that? They re- Are you not sitting in here right now? thinking, I really want my story to matter. I really want my life to count. And some of you are followers of Christ and you're still trying to figure out what that looks like. And I'm telling you that you need to insert your little small story to God's story. And some of you are like, right now you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and I want to tell you that you can be by simply just praying, dear God, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins. I know you created me for your glory, I want to live for you as Lord of my life. Something like that. And then tell someone. We all think that. Let me give you two more quick principles and we'll be done. Here's a, here's the second one, or next is the last one. Whatever you do, do for God's glory. And you're looking at your life and you think, well, I can't really do all that. I'm not the missionary. I'm not the preacher. I'm not the seminary. I'm not the paid whatever. I'm not the small group. Like, Paul, who becomes a believer after ravaging the church, like writes to the church of Colossians, and he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for your own recognition, right? For your own glory. Do it, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is a tell of two stories. Yours, which is fine, and God's, which is infinite. Yours, which is pretty fell and feeble, and yet God's, which is forever. Here's the last one. Live with the end in mind. 
Jesus kind of gives away the ending to his disciples. It's like spoiler alert. When he tells them in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote the book of Revelation when God gives him a vision, a picture of what heaven will look like. In Revelation 15, 4, it says this, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? Like, like in some sense, like, is there anyone who won't bring glory to his name? Is there anyone? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship before you, and for your righteous acts have been revealed. So as you're asking yourself about all this margin, and just like I've been doing, like what's wrong, what's missing, what's right, Is there margin in your story for a bigger story? Is there room in your life where you're not center stage, but yet God is? Or maybe the question should just be, when I'm looking at everything I'm doing in my life, like, why? Because it has been prearranged that your life declare a story. That God, before you existed, in love, chose to set you apart not to fit in but to actively participate in something critical something vital something historical something biblical something eternal something that is for and only for his glory God we come before you God first of all I just thank you for your word that we can I'd sit in it and soak in it. Sometimes we skim through it, but God, it's truth and it's powerful. And God, I thank you that in our smallness, you chose us. I thank you that in your love that we can't comprehend that God, you lavish us with. God, forgive me for times I hijacked your story. And I want it to be about me. And I want the glory. And I want the name recognition. Yet, God, I pray we would be a church. That we constantly revisit and refresh the purpose of what you're doing in all of history, in our lives today, and you will be doing in the future for your name and for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.